0: It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain. Somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone.
1: Lift off. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winifeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. The U.S.
0: Navy's nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and their embarked aircraft represent 90,000 tons and four and a half acres of U.S. sovereign territory wherever they venture around the world. With 5,000 embarked personnel, they're simultaneously a floating city and a busy airport.
1: Operating one of these behemoths mostly involves three key tasks, safely running two large nuclear reactors, managing the incredible ballet of air operations, and safe navigation, all on the high seas.
0: And while many on the ship are expert in one of these three vital disciplines,
1: only one person has mastered all three, the captain. By law, the captain of a nuclear carrier has to be a nuclear-trained naval aviator. In this week's episode, we interview Captain Amy Bauernschmidt, the first woman to command a carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln.
0: Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Freedom Consulting Group. If you're looking for stimulating work in our national security intelligence sector, check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. We caught up with Amy after a highly successful deployment aboard USS Lincoln with her ship now in the shipyard. Captain Amy Bauernschmidt, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. We are so grateful that you're able to join us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an incredible honor to be here.
1: Well, Amy, uh, again, it's really neat to have you. Uh, First of all, congratulations on having this amazing job as a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier CO and also on the the heels of a very uh, successful deployment to the Western Pacific and Rim of the Pacific exercise and all of that. Uh, So let's start all the way back at the beginning. Uh, How did you get interested in the Navy? And uh, what was your path to becoming a naval aviator?
2: You know, it was really quite by accident. As my mom might joke, in my one moment of maturity in high school, I knew that I was going to need to pay for most of my education. So I thought to myself, well, you should really try to find a major that you're interested in that will allow you to get a good J-O-B to pay off all those loans you'll probably have. And so I picked up a book one day in a bookstore And it was where kind of in the same SAT, ACT section, but you could look up a major and then it told you a little bit about that major and then the schools that offered it. And I knew I loved the water and I knew I loved math and sciences. So I looked up everything that had an aquatic name to it. So from aqua and marine and ocean. And the result of that was I found this major called ocean engineering. And when I found that major, there were only about seven or nine schools in all the United States of America that had that as a major. And the Naval Academy was one. I go into my guidance counselor and I'm like, hey, you know, there's this Naval Academy place. What do you know? And they basically said to me, I don't know. I think there's a book back there, which sort of intrigued me all the more. And a year and a half or so later, I found myself at the Naval Academy prep school in Newport, Rhode Island. Good grades, but not perfect grades. And so I did that for a year, which allowed me to get to the Naval Academy uh, and I had an absolutely amazing time. So that's sort of how I came upon the navy and then even at the naval academy, I'm not I I don't think I truly appreciated what I was getting into when I got into it. And so I over the summers in between each year at the naval academy, we do a bunch of training and allows us to get out and see all different kinds of aspects of the navy. And I was like, they're going to teach me how to fly? That's awesome. I think I want to do that. And so that's how I became a naval aviator.
0: Wow. It's that whole voyage of, I don't know what I don't know, but I know it when I see it, that I like it. Yep. (laughs) So you actually deployed a number of times as an operational helicopter pilot on the destroyer, John Young, who, by the way, famous astronaut, fellow Georgia Tech graduate. Uh, You're also aboard carriers with over 3,000 hours of flight time. So in in that context, what kind of missions did you perform?
2: Uh, So my aircraft does a couple things, flew helicopters started out in an aircraft called the SH-60 Bravo and then moved over to the MH-60 Romeo. And it's a helicopter that does anti what we call anti-submarine warfare and anti-surface warfare. And then it just added a new primary mission area a couple of years ago, and that's in the electronic warfare realm. So we're going out and we're finding, you know, enemy surface ships or submarines or just identifying other ships on the surface and making sure that that picture is sent back to the admiral that is oftentimes on the aircraft carrier so that they have a and all the other warfare commanders so they have a complete picture of what the the battle space looks like that we're operating in
0: by the way, speaking of, of Navy women helicopter pilots, do you know Wendy Lawrence or Sonny Williams, two of my colleagues? I do.
2: Wendy Lawrence was actually my physics teacher when I was at the Naval Academy. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. And she uh, she also assisted with the women's crew team. And there were many a times that we went out on a run. And I will not tell you how much faster she was than the rest of us. But we, we had our hands full keeping up with, uh, with Wendy Lawrence.
1: She's also the daughter of one of my father's Naval Academy classmates, and I spoke at the commissioning of the USS Lawrence uh, a few years ago. Uh, so it's a small world. And I, I met Wendy uh, when I was a squadron CEO, so remarkable. And she is a pretty impressive gal.
2: Extremely impressive.
1: So uh, in your helo flying, uh, did you ever have a chance to pick up a wayward naval aviator who somehow ended up in the water? Or was that a different aircraft doing those missions?
2: That's a different aircraft. The aircraft is always capable of doing search and rescue. We usually, we do not have the air crewmen, the enlisted air crewmen in the back. We usually fly with one. Uh, Two are typically required to do search and rescue. So that was a different squadron, different airframe. Uh, At this point, there are two helicopter squadrons on the aircraft carrier, which is probably only about the last 10, 12 years. Uh, And that is the other community, the HSC community or the HSM. So really when we go out and we find those, submarines, we we can take care of them or we can call in uh, larger fixed wing aircraft, the P eight, to come in and, and help drop torpedoes. Or we could we have actually called in F-18s and other aircraft to help take out any surface units.
0: So do you have any hairy stories from any of those deployments that you can talk about? There,
2: there's there's <laughs> one that was kind of interesting. You know, I, I've been fortunate knock on wood that, you know, I haven't had a lot of any aircraft emergencies I've had have been somewhat benign and, and fairly easy to handle in nature. Uh, but my very first deployment, it was one of our very first flights inside of the Persian Gulf. And, you know, that's when I was still flying the old version of our aircraft, the sh 660 Bravo. And while we had an electronic measure system for electronic warfare, it was still, uh, it was not as mature as it is today. And so it was only as good as this library that you programmed into it. And our library was, eh, it was, it was kind of general in nature, Uh, but I, you know, it was my first deployment, first time in the Persian Gulf. So yeah, they tell you about that, but you know, I hadn't experienced any of it yet. So we're flying and we were tracking some folks that were smuggling oil along the coast of Iran. And we were just outside of Iranian territorial waters at about 14 miles or so. And we're just kind of flying along using our radars and other sensors to keep track of this ship. And our system picks up what it thinks is a fire control radar. And now you're 14 miles from the coast of Iran. On my very first deployment, on my very first night flight, it was probably midnight, one in the morning, your aircraft is picking up what you think is a fire control radar. And my blood pressure definitely went up for a little bit there. So we maneuvered, we got away, You know, downloaded some files when we landed. Turns out that essentially we had a very Broad look at some sensors that were coming in. And if you had looked at it more narrowly, it actually wasn't a fire control radar, but we didn't know that at the time. So it was an interesting flight.
1: I call that a pucker factor.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. A high one. <laughs> no kidding.
1: <laughs> so, um, you know, there are a lot of possible pathways uh, for uh, a naval aviator after squadron command. And entering the pipeline to become a carrier CO is only one of them, although I would say it's a very special. Pathway. Uh, was being a carrier CEO something you always wanted to do, or was it something that you, you know, sort of got thrust upon you? Or um, when did you figure out that you wanted to do it and could do it?
2: So I was really a department head. Uh, my first carrier experience was on my third tour in the Navy, which is something we call a dissociated sea tour. And I was fortunate enough to work for two pretty incredible admirals as an admiral's aide to the admiral that's in charge of not only the aircraft carrier, but the rest of the carrier strike group. And it was really from there that I'm not even sure I realized at that moment that it was truly an option because my community was still deploying on destroyers and frigates and cruisers at the time. And it was really after that job where we kind of pivoted and we really took the place of a different anti-submarine aircraft that had been on the aircraft carrier, the S3. As it was going away, they were putting my new airframe on the aircraft carrier, which sort of opened up this new world to us. And when I got out to Japan to do my department head tour, our new airframe wasn't quite there yet. but the old aircraft was still gone. And it was another admiral out there that looked around and went, but I need an anti-submarine asset on this aircraft carrier. So who am I going to use? Saw our squadron and said, you guys come on over to the aircraft carrier. So I was an officer in charge, which was still a normal path for our, our community, a lieutenant commander, department head in charge of Uh, What I call a super debt because it was about 60 people, which was almost double the size of a normal detachment on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk, a conventional aircraft carrier. But that was truly my first, the first time I really started considering what it would be like to go on that pathway. And eventually, when I became, got through, was selected and got through the pipeline, uh, I ended up as the executive officer for about six or eight months of the very first person I had a conversation with about this pipeline, which was at the time Captain Ron Ravello. Uh, a fellow helicopter pilot for that other community uh, who had picked up the carrier pipeline while we were in Japan together as he was leaving squadron command and I was the department head. Uh, and then I became his executive officer years later.
1: Wow. Small world. And uh, I suppose that you spent some time on the bridge, you kind of snooped around the carrier a little bit while you were there, and you kind of picked up on on what this whole big machine was all about.
2: Yeah, it was kind of hard at the time. I'm um, the type of person, you know. You don't want to jinx yourself. I hadn't even picked up command yet, which was which is a huge milestone. Command of a squadron, in uh, the Navy. But one piece of advice I was given by some at the time, folks that had completed command, was, "Hey, think about what comes after that." And I was like, "Wow, gosh, I'm not even there yet." Um, <laughs> but I did think about it a little bit, and I and I looked at some of the options, and out of all of the the choices, you know, I, and I didn't know how much I was going to be able to steer that. But I thought, hey, if it If it comes to fruition, I think this carrier route is is the route that I think would be the most amazing to pursue.
0: So along the way, then, the the USS San Diego was your training wheels before getting to the command of the Abraham Lincoln. And talk a little bit about that and what was your experience? So when you're selected for this program, you're really selected for what we call deep
2: draft or major command. And that's what the USS San Diego was. It's a LPD, uh, amphibious ship. Quite frankly, pretty darn, call it deep draft, and it doesn't have a very deep draft, but it is a large ship. So it's about 800 feet long, has about 400, just a little over 400 sailors on it, and about 700 Marines when they are embarked. Uh, It's a pretty darn big ship. I think it has a a fairly small crew, considering the size ship that it is. It was phenomenal, though. It was the first time, I think, uh, truly, after I got there, I I logically understood that we would have a lot of ensigns, the lowest officer uh, in the Navy on board the ship, but it was really the first time that I had led ensigns. So brand new to the Navy, their first stop, their first set of qualifications, and you get quite a few of them. Um, your department heads are a lot junior than they are in squadron or in other jobs that I'd had in the Navy. So it was a very different leadership challenge. My ship at the time if you'd asked anybody on the waterfront, it was an extremely successful ship. But, you know, like any organization kind of, you know, has a sinusoidal wave and has its ups and downs. We were we were kind of experiencing a little bit of a down, and we were kind of trying to get ourselves back to uh, a really good spot before they went on deployment. So we had some really unique leadership challenges just from a ton of really young officers just trying to find their way in the Navy I required a different level of patience than I'd had in some of my other jobs. Um, And it's always fast paced and hectic as you get ready to go on deployment. And I took them through the entire phase of the ship's life from just coming out of about six months of maintenance. And then I departed just as they were leaving on deployment. So it was a really rewarding, probably one of the tougher tours of my naval career.
1: I had a very similar uh, experience because I commanded uh, USS Cleveland, which is a much, much older LPD than San Diego. But it was one of the most fun tours I think I ever had because of the seamanship involved and and, uh, it was a, a really different kind of a challenge.
0: If you want to serve your country by being on the front lines of providing critical information to our nation's key decision makers, consider a career in the intelligence community.
1: Freedom Consulting Group offers a highly rewarding way to be part of the intelligence community in the private sector. If you're an experienced coder and an American citizen and are looking for a great work environment, job security, and terrific benefits, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. Let's roll the tape back a little bit, Amy. Um, When you were selected for the nuclear power carrier pipeline, you had to do this little thing called Nuclear Power School. And also, be the exO a carrier. Talk to us a little bit about you know that sort of initial process as they start grooming you for your deep draft and for carrier command
2: yeah, so once you're selected, the first thing you do is you get a nuclear power training, and it's about six months of pretty intense just sitting in a classroom, lots of tests and examinations, then you do about six months of really hands on a lot more tests, uh, but it's a lot more hands on learning and then we Go to Naval Reactor Headquarters for about four months and do the end of our, our book learning. I'm fortunate that I was, you know, I figure I, I headed off Alzheimer's for at least ten or fifteen years from that those rigors <laughs> of studying. Um, I'm the person that uh, that's put in a lot of time there, and I needed to put in a lot of time there. While there were some that studied a little bit more than I did, there were there were quite a few folks that could study a little bit less than I did. So I was a a good upper middle. Um, So for myself, for the six months I was there, I took one day off. Uh, Other than that, I was in studying each day. It's actually really interesting academics. It's kind of hard to appreciate all the academics because you're doing it at such a pace. You try to not move from just test to test to test, but you end up moving from just test to test to test because you're doing at least one a week, if not two, um, and they're kind of long. Looking back on it, I enjoyed it. There were quite a few nights so early on because you don't get even an equation sheet or anything. Everything has to be up your head. And by the time you've done all the homework problems they ask you to do, for the most part, you got all the equations in your head. But I remember many a nights waking up at 2, 3 in the morning, reciting equations in my head, asking myself what the heck I did to myself. <laughs> so it was uh, looking back on it. I'm glad I did it. There were quite a few moments when I was in it that I was wondering what the heck I did to myself. But it was also really naval aviation that taught me how to study. I don't think i think getting through high school in the naval academy i did more by brute strength than the fact that i was actually decent academically and it was really going through uh, becoming a pilot that taught me how to study uh, what it meant to really learn information and then be able to you know act on it and use it whether it was emergency procedures in the aircraft or just aircraft knowledge to apply to a problem that you had in the aircraft. And so I was actually very thankful to Naval Aviation that by the time I got to nuclear power school, I knew better how to study and how to prepare myself. If I had tried to do something like nuclear, first off, they wouldn't have accepted me right out of the academy. But if they had, I probably wouldn't have done very well. Because at the, at the time, I didn't really know what it meant to study. I would often you know, open up your textbook or something, I'd read something or do a problem. But had I tried to close that textbook, set it aside, and then regurgitate what I had just learned, I wouldn't have been very successful at it. And that came through studying in the aviation pipeline.
1: You know, I went into every single test at nuclear power school thinking I was going to fail. And it was one of those life experiences that show you that you're much more capable than you think you are of doing things. And it was just tremendously valuable.
0: You know, it, it's it's funny. While I was on Space Station, I coined this phrase called type two fun, which was it wasn't fun while you were having it. But when you look back on it, it was actually pretty fun. This sounds like type two fun.
2: I don't know if I would give it quite that much credit. <laughs> but I see where you I, I see where you're going with that.
1: <laughs> it's a good place to be from, but not a good place to be.
0: True statement. Now that you know you're commanding the carrier. And so operationally, you know, we start to talk about risk. There's a lot going on just in the flight deck. And so I can you talk a little bit about how that works and then how you manage the risks? Cause again, you've got all these young people on the decks and it's and it's a very busy place and and the environment is also very challenging. So let's talk about that a little bit.
2: Sure. Yeah. So the average age on our carrier right now is about 21.8 years old, which is actually up about a year or so from a while back, a few people joining a little bit later, but still very, very young. And when you think about, you know, a couple hundred, you know, y- young folks up on the flight deck. Uh, one important thing to remember is you know the Navy never hires into middle management. We all start at the beginning, whether it's officer or enlisted, you're still at the beginning, and then you learn as you as you come up in the organization for the folks on the flight deck, you know you don't start out as what we call an aircraft handler, a yellow shirt, being one of the primary people taxiing around you know a billion dollar aircraft five feet from the edge of the ship that if <laughs> it goes over, you're having a bad day. You start out kind of. Observing, you start out with just handling what we call chocks and chains that go onto the aircraft to keep it from moving, and you gradually work up. So I think, and in that process, what you know starts at boot camp, then any schooling between boot camp and your first ship, and then on your first ship, you are slowly learning. And it's the folks above you that understand the expectations and the standards that ensure that as you grow up and you get higher and higher qualifications, that you are getting done exactly what needs to be done for, frankly, in one of the most dangerous places in the world, which is the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. But it's also amazing. I mean, watching these young sailors, they just—they have no quit in them. And I just just get goosebumps thinking about it. You know, as soon as an aircraft launches and they're getting ready for the next one, uh, they have to, you know, move around and get a couple things done. And they could easily just walk and none of them do it. They're always kind of jogging. Going from spot to spot, and they do just an incredible job. So they are incredibly impressive.
0: So one of the singular advantages, you know, going back to the nuclear propulsion and the nuclear sculias, that's one one of the things that we have an advantage at the U.S. Of course, France has them as well. And it sounds like it's an amazing culture, and it's been something that the Navy's been doing for over seventy years on the oceans. And so how do you manage the risks there? Clearly, it's been done well. And you've learned a lot, I suppose, in nuclear school about it, but that's operationally a whole another arena.
2: Yeah. So at the exact opposite of that flight deck, the opposite end of the ship are these two nuclear reactors with, you know, an, again, another couple hundred professionals that are incredibly highly trained, that understand the expectations and the standards again. And we come from this amazing culture started with, you know, Admiral Rickover, both on the flight deck and across the ship in reactor as well, we really get after the small problems so they don't become big things. We don't tolerate uh, a lot of what most people would consider, I I don't want to say small mistakes, but kind of minor deviations from the standard is we make sure that each and every person as much as possible each and every moment of the day is maintaining the standards so that we don't allow those little things to grow into bigger issues Mm -hmm. that could be catastrophic either for personnel or for equipment.
1: So um, one of the things that I often tell people about carrier COs is that there are sort of three big things you have to do on a carrier. You have to, you know, obviously run a nuclear propulsion plant safely and effectively. You have to operate this incredibly complicated air operations system And you also have to navigate successfully on the high seas. And one of the things I tell people is there are people on the ship who are very good at one of those things, but there's only one person on the ship who has mastered all three. So talk to us about how you mastered the piece about navigating on the surface of the ocean, because you're doing underway replenishments, you're going in and out of port, you're anchoring, you're avoiding traffic while you're doing flight operations. How does that work for you? and, And how did you get good at it?
2: Well, mastering all three, might be a little, little, little bit overstating it, but you do have to be, you know, decent at all three things. One of the toughest things to teach young officers that are starting out on the bridge is relative motion and what it looks like as you're maneuvering. Uh, and it's something that as an aviator, I think you learn pretty quickly and you're kind of forced into it as you start doing formation flying when you're young. And so Once you learn it, it is as applicable across platforms. So once you kind of learn relative motion, you kind of have an understanding, you know, if I make this maneuver, what the other aspect of the the ship will look like. If you're trying to get into position with another ship, how tight to make the turn, when to start the turn, when to stop the turn. And so I think if I would take any one of my young surface warfare officers and put them in an aircraft, they probably pick it up much faster than I did when I first started flying formation flights in an aircraft and vice versa. So I think that piece, once you learn either, you know, flying or or ship driving, one aspect of it, uh, you can pick up a little easier well, when you go to the next one. Uh, there have been plenty of port visits that, you know, I think aged me quite a few years uh, because they're just, you know, aircraft carriers don't fit very well in every place that we go. I do have a great team of professionals, though. So yes, it is all on the commanding officer's shoulders, but you're never doing any of it alone. Uh, and I do have an incredible navigation team, an incredible reactor team, an incredible air department team. And so I think understanding as well people and their strengths and having that open environment where that they can ask questions or have a questioning attitude about something that you're doing is also important because, you know, no one person can get everything done on that ship that needs to get done. And so there I am fortunate that there's an incredible team there of professionals that assist each and every day.
0: You know, in aviation, we use simulations, flight simulators and things like that to get a feel for some of this dynamics. Do you have the same system for the ship navigators and operators? We do. And it's actually gotten more a lot more robust in the last couple of years. And
2: so we, for the aircraft carrier, end up, qualifying in the same manner that the surface warfare officers do before they command. So before I was allowed to take command of the USS San Diego, I had to pass all of the same qualifications that a surface warfare officer had to pass uh, for their community. And that included a written exam and a ship driving simulator and a kind of a tactical simulator. And so in preparation for that, we did some ship handling. You're pulling in and out of port, you're driving in heavily congested waterways, oftentimes different Straits around the world that are track you know transited by thousands of ships a day, and so you practice all of that operating within the rules of the road that ship handlers use, and so there are various different levels that give you everything from kind of a more rudimentary just practicing the stick and rudder version of ship handling all the way up to you know three hundred and sixty degree simulators. Uh, one of the things that I actually found quite helpful as I was moving into the amphib for the first time and then back to the carriers, we would do what's was called a slalom course. And they would literally just put ships, they'd put ships in a line. <laughs> and you would literally kind of, you know, try to drive the ship around almost like you were a slalom course. And the goal, of course, was to do it as fast as possible, but safely. And if you wanted to do it fast, you were making, you know, you were trying to anticipate the turns and keep it tighter around the ships by making these big sweeping turns that would take You know both more time using that much rudder slows down the ship and it was actually a great way to kind of reorient yourself back to the class of ship that you were driving and we often use it i'll do it with my junior officers and we'll time each one of them and see who wins
1: so it's not like skiing though where you get to elbow aside the pylon uh you you have to completely (laughs) miss the pylon here
2: you have to completely miss the pylon
1: Looking for meaningful employment within the intelligence community? Look no further. Freedom Consulting Group's a great place to work and has several open positions for American citizens in the technology field.
0: Technical teams at Freedom focus on using the right technology to create flexible, long-lasting solutions for key clients.
1: So if you're an experienced coder looking for a fantastic position in the world of intelligence, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com.
0: Well, shifting gears a little bit, we talked about some of the, the technical operational issues, but you're also the mayor of a 5,000 person city. So there's human dynamics. So in addition to all of the technical and operational balls, there's the managing people part. What's the hardest part of that job? It's also the
2: most exciting part, but, you know, leadership, I, you know, I think leadership is hard because it is people. And not everyone is motivated by the same thing. Not everyone responds in the same way. And when you're talking about 5,000 people, it's it's a lot of people to, to try to move in in a direction. You know, my, I'm blessed that I have a wonderful executive officer, number two in charge of the carrier. And when it comes to a lot of the simple things, the day in and day out running of the city, I really rely on not only my executive officer, but my most senior enlisted, my command master chief. I have 20 Department heads on board the ship, and I really work with that group of twenty-two people to make sure that they understand where we need to be going. And on a day-in and day-out basis, they're doing a pretty good share of the running of the city. And then, conversely, I spend some of my time with my peers, um, fellow warfare commanders, the person in charge of the airway, and the person in charge of all of our escort destroyers, uh, an information warfare commander, and we're really trying to help provide our feedback to the. Admiral that has embarked about the tactical operation of the entire strike group. So we each have our own piece and we work together to make sure that we are providing sound options on how to also employ this entire strike group, carrier strike group that we call it, uh, tactically when we're overseas. So while I'm absolutely monitoring what's happening in the city, I rely on really those 22 people each and every day to take care of it. And that's everything from the Starbucks we have and the ship store and haircuts and laundry and chapels and libraries to also being able to fix not only the aircraft, but the ship. And so I think this last deployment, we repaired and put back into service over 19 aircraft engines, uh, had to completely rebuild several small generators. And we have to be able to do all of that plus load up the ordnance that's required to conduct our mission.
1: So with all the, um, Air operations, nuclear power, navigating on the high seas, mayor of a five thousand person town, supporting a strike group commander and your fellow warfare commanders. You ever get any sleep while you're underway? How do you manage the stress and the fatigue that you know kind of come along with that amazing job you've got?
2: You've kind of grown up doing this, so since we don't hire into the middle anywhere, Sue, so you, you really have seen maybe not the inner workings of how a, a person tackles this, but especially as executive officer, you get a pretty good glimpse on how to support the commanding officer pretty well. And so, again, I'm blessed to have an incredible team that does a lot of the lion's share of the work, which allows me to get a little bit of sleep. And then the good or the bad news sometimes is when you deploy in more of the winter months, which we did, depending on the mission, there were times where we flew very late into the night, but there's also times where we were able to cut off flight operations in order to get a little bit of that sleep. And then there are just some days where you're just tired. And I know... Not to schedule certain meetings on those days when I'm really tired, and I know kind of how to help manage my schedule, or just look at you know what I'm also blessed to have a couple people that can sit up on the bridge for me. Uh, I'm normally up there during almost all flight operations and other what we call high risk evolutions. Uh, I can tap my navigator or my executive officer or my operations officer on the shoulder and say, "Hey, can you take it for an hour or two? I need to go grab a nap."
0: Shifting gears just a little bit, you know, the submarine force just named its first female chief of the boat on a nuclear sub. And, you know, I've had conversations with Wendy about some of her experiences. And I know that, um, you know, Naval Asian is committed to having no glass ceiling for women and minorities when it comes to command. And you're the first woman to command a carrier. But it's been a while, you know, it's been 18 years since you graduated from the Naval Academy. So would you care to talk about some of the obstacles that you faced and how you see the environment has changed over the last 20 years or so? Or has it? I guess.
2: I definitely think it has. When I graduated in 1994, just before I graduated is when the National Defense Authorization Act lifted most of the exclusions for women in combat for us in the Navy. And so it was really the women that were currently in flight school uh, as I was getting ready to graduate that were the first ones that really had the option to go into combat aircraft. So when I got to my first squadron, there were only two other women in the squadron And I I probably should have put two and two together, but I didn't realize that they were the most senior two women in my entire community. But they were there. And so, you know, I, I got to my first ship, the destroyer. There were women on board the ship. I had two roommates, my combat systems officer and the damage control assistant. And so I don't think I appreciated exactly where we were in time and space because everywhere I went as a as a brand new officer, I had women. To the left of me and to the right of me. And then some of those women that graduated a couple of years prior to me, but were still in flight school that either selected combat aircraft, or there were one or two that switched into combat aircraft. I crossed paths with most of my career, which included, you know, when I was commanding officer of a squadron, and it was the first female commanding officer in our community. I also had Admiral Wendy Lawrence, who was the first female strike group commander. And so I've been just really lucky both in the community that I grew up in, just amazing male mentors, absolutely incredible male mentors that truly we were kind of an interesting community when we first started out is we weren't carrier based initially. And so we weren't kind of in the same group in the same tail hook group. But we also, you know, weren't like some of our large fixed wing aircraft that completely stayed deployed on land and just could fly from location to location. So we were in this kind of weird tweener group. And I think because of that community, what we really relied on each other in order to get the job done. And, and nobody really cared who you were. We just needed to get the job done because we were a little bit, uh, we were a little bit of a community on our own island. Uh, and so the only way we got into the places we needed and get the, got the mission done was if we relied on each other. And so I think that really started it with a bunch of incredible male mentors, always having women around me. So I, it was just, it was normal for both them as men, but also myself. Uh, and then having incredible women around me you know, my entire career.
1: You know, you said, just as a minor point, you you said Wendy Lawrence was your strike group commander. I think it was actually Nora Tyson. And
2: Nora Tyson, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry and about
1: I, that. I I think the world of Nora helped her along, uh, you know, because she was not a, a carrier aviator and became uh, a strike group commander and ended up commanding the third fleet. I think the world of her. So I'm glad you got a chance to be exposed to her. Any other uh, uh, women? I know it's been a good week for the Navy. Lisa Franchetti just took over as the vice chief of naval operations and uh, Sandra mentioned the first female chief of the boat. So, uh, are you optimistic about the trajectory the Navy's on in that regard?
2: Absolutely. So, at the same time that is my bad. You had Wendy Lawrence on my head from earlier. So, at the same time we had Nora <laughs> at the same time we had Nora Tyson on the strike group. Um Admiral Klein was the ESG commander that was out uh operating overseas when I was there on the carrier on the George H.W. Bush with Admiral Tyson. Uh, so Admiral Klein has always been an incredible mentor. I needed to reach out to um, Admiral Joyner, uh, also an incredible mentor. She was the first female carrier air wing commander in charge of the eight squadrons, aircraft squadrons that deploy on the carrier. And then I had a cold email, Valerie Overstreet. So Sarah Joyner was the first female commanding officer of a squadron on aircraft carrier, followed by Valerie Overstreet, followed by me. I had a couple of questions one day. I had a completely cold email, Valerie Overstreet, and said, hey, could you you help me with this? And she couldn't have been more incredible. So I am blessed that I am able to stay in touch with Admiral Tyson, Admiral Klein, Valerie Overstreet, um, and Admiral Joyner, just a great group of,
1: of people. It's a small world because Val Overstreet is the daughter of a guy named Gil Rood, who was a former Blue Angel and was the XO of an A7 squadron when I was a baby in the F-14 community. And I just, you know, really, really respected him, considered him a role model my whole career. And then got having the opportunity to work with Val later on was a real privilege for me. So you've been around some pretty cool people.
2: Yeah, I have been around some really awesome people. And then, uh, we just selected last year, so about 10 months ago, our second air wing, female air wing commander's coming up, and she's an incredible human. She's just an incredible officer. And then we're, it's, we're close. For some reason, I thought we'd picked up an X, a female XO for the submarine force, but is in the next year or two. It just kind of took that time again to get through the program from when they were able to start on submarines. And so I'm very optimistic. We're still not there yet, but the numbers get bigger each year, and people are doing incredible work. The, the Navy keeps trying to improve, you know, they've, they've developed several programs, including um, essentially like an off ramp or a sabbatical kind of program that I, I admit I was kind of skeptical of when we first started it. It's probably been going about 10 years now, but it's helped both men and women. But it also kind of helps with, you know, Valerie Overstreet did it and, and a couple of other incredible officers and were able to come back after a year, between a year and three years off. Uh, which sometimes help with family planning, which can be one of the bigger challenges uh, that you have deploying in the military. But yeah, so I'm very optimistic about where the Navy's going with women.
0: You know, after listening to everything that you've been talking about, I'm intrigued by your job. It sounds fun and challenging.
2: It is. It's an amazing job. The the sailors are incredible. And it's really, you know, I I get up and go to work every day because all those sailors are, you know, Anyone that ever says, I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know about this generation. I said, come to my ship. You will see the next generation and you will have absolutely no concerns whatsoever about where this country is going because they are incredibly amazing human beings.
1: Yeah, I work with students a lot and have the same thoughts. So, Amy, one of the great things about the nuclear carrier pipeline for an aviator, as hard as it is, uh, is that you spend hardly any time in Washington, D.C. I think (laughs) I did my entire time as a captain. (laughs) Not in Washington, D.C., except for the very, very end. Uh, And it's hard sometimes being at sea, but it's a lot of fun. So how much longer are you going to have, Commander Flanken? Is there a horizon there? And any idea what's going to come after that that you can share?
2: I personally have absolutely no clue. As you probably remember from your time, you don't have a whole lot of control over your life. I hope to be there for at least another year, maybe up to a year and a half, somewhere in that window. So another 12 to 18 months. And then, you know, one of the tough things about this pipeline And The Navy's working on that too, but because it's such a long pipeline, every pay grade, we have what we call higher tenure, and you can only stick around for a certain amount of time per pay grade. And almost all carrier COs start getting really close to that higher tenure. And so it's really going to be up to, you know, we'll, we'll find out. I am optimistic, but we'll find out.
1: Somebody will call you soon. I'm sure. It happened to me. It's like, hey, I need you to come back and be my executive assistant. And I went, my gosh, I'm going to be going from being the this wonderful job commanding this beautiful ship with 5000 sailors to going and being somebody's executive assistant. But that's okay. Bigger and better things will come along.
2: I'm just going to enjoy every moment on the ship while I got it and that's really all I think about is taking care <laughs> of those sailors.
1: Good for you. I love it. Good. Well, look, this has just been a delightful discussion and it took me down memory lane. It's really uh, cool to be able to talk to any carrier CEO, much less um, first woman to have the opportunity to do that. I'm very proud of you and very excited uh, for what you've done and what you're going to do in the future. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you both for having me. Uh, it's kind of intimidating to come on a show that has such impressive resumes as your host, but thank you very much for having me.
0: That was Captain Amy Bauernschmidt, the first woman to command a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. I'm Sandra Magnus.
1: And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Freedom Consulting Group for sponsoring this episode. Do work that matters. Check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. And check
0: us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Amy on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.
1: And that wraps up Season 2 of The Adrenaline Zone. We'll see you soon with a whole new set of risk-taking guests and some new ideas for the podcast.